Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. together from remote galaxies are some of the most sinister podcasters of all time the long box of doom dedicated to a single objective the conquest of the comic book universe hey everybody welcome to long box of doom 245. Wow, that's a lot of episodes. Tonight we're talking about Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. And joining me in this ragtag, weird space opera fantasy uh, couple on the run, Romeo and Juliet recasting, are my good friends, Mr. Jordan from Jersey of the Jersey Sure podcast. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Pretty great. And uh, Russ L. of the Real Heroes podcast. Hey. And tonight, as I said, we're talking about Saga Volume 1, that'd be issues 1 through 6. And I believe issue 1, is it still available for free or for a dollar on Comixology? I believe so. Yes, it is. It is free on Comixology. Your first, your first taste is free. <laughs> and it's the biggest issue of the, the set, too. I think it's like uh, 40 pages or something as opposed to 22 for the rest. So if you want to read along with us, go ahead and grab that off Comicsology. You have no excuse not to. But uh, like I said, it's Saga, Brian K. Vaughn, and Fiona Staples. And I'm pretty happy. I mean, uh, granted, I, I really uh, appreciate all of our fans and, and the great response we got from the Age of Apocalypse series that we did. But I'm really keen to do some uh, more modern, more um, you know up-to-date comics. There are so many great comics coming out right now. So uh, I'm going to put Jordan and Russ on the spot. Guys, name something that you would like to do that came out in the last five years and then you'd like to spotlight on the long box. There is a book I was thinking about the other day because it was also on sale on Comixology. They had a whole Matt Fraction sale and that was The Order from about eh, four or five years ago. It was right after Civil War. It was part of the initiative and it was basically we need superheroes we can control because this whole Civil War thing was a mess. Lots of people got hurt or died. Um, and just the public doesn't trust us. So Tony Stark teams with, up with a few other people, um, in, including Pepper Potts, to start this program called The Order, where they give people superpowers for a year. And basically, you enter the program. I think a lot of the people were ex-military, but I forget. It's been a, a little while since I've read it. We give you superpowers for a year. At the end of the year, your, super your superpowers are taken away, and you return to normal life. But you have a year to change the world. But also, we are going to monitor everything you do. And you screw up. We take your powers away. So you got to play by the rules. You've got to be a, a, quote, professional superhero and do the right thing, or you don't get to play along in this game. So this is your chance. You got a year to do whatever you want in terms of saving people. You screw up or you don't use the powers right, you're gone. And it was a fun 10 issue uh, series where you really got a full story for these characters, and a couple of them have shown up once or twice since then in uh, Avengers the Initiative or uh, Invincible Iron Man when Fraction was writing it, but for the most part, you get just like these complete stories of characters you've never seen before and for the most part won't see again, and it was really fun. And this is going to be fairly recent uh, stuff, actually. Two Marvel titles, I know, shocker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thor, um, God of Thunder, the new Jason Aaron, Asad Ribic series, because I... 
I know I sing its praises all the time, but I really think that's the best series that Marvel has going. And this is from a huge X-Men guy, but that series just, just bowls me over every, every time I, I read an issue. Um, and the, the other one would be, um, again, to kind of pile on the Matt Fraction uh, train is his Hawkeye. Such a good series, man. Oh, it's, it's phenomenal. I read, um, again, I, I kind of uh, piggybacked on that Comixology series, and I'd read a, a few of the issues um, and had, had already bought, I think, the first two, but they had the first five on Comixology for 99 cents, so I bought issues three, four, and five, and, and they're all one and dones, except four and five are this two-part story, and it is phenomenal. His, his relationship with uh, Kate Bishop is, is just really, really cool. Um, Was four and five the, the two just, issues with Madame Mask in them? Yes. Yeah, those were really good. Yeah, and then there's an issue, I think issue three was called Cherry, where he buys the car. Yes, and, oh, uh, so fun with the oh arrows Oh my god, and that was awesome. Oh, it was just, just. I mean, this is Matt Fraction in his wheelhouse, um, just just with that with that really, really good writing, and the David Aja art is, is just really fitting. So those are two, I would say, recently that are just really um, spinning my wheels. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Fraction really, it's kind of like Jeff Loeb. He runs hot and cold for me. I, I love what he's doing on Hawkeye. And I really like The Order as well, Jordan. I thought that was a really underrated series when it came out. But then, you know, he does stuff like Defenders, which I'm really not digging at all. And That was a mess. That was yeah. just, oh, it, it had so much potential and just did not work at all. And then I'm, I'm, I'm liking what he's doing on FF, but I'm really not feeling his Fantastic Four very much either, so... Um, just kind of, fraction's kind of hot and cold for me. But I'm going to take it away from Marvel, uh, from take the ball away from Marvel for a minute here. And I want to uh, shout out something from Dark Horse that I've really enjoyed, and I hope we get to do on the show in the future, uh, by Francesco Francavia. Uh, the book is The Black Beetle, and it is one of the finest uh, comics I've read. If you're a fan of Mike Mignola or Darwin Cook or that very uh, that very stylized, very cool uh, um, illustrative style that that they have then you really need to check this book out. It's like it's like if Batman, um, you know, was in Sin City and it was all drawn by, you know, a baby that, you know, of Darwin Cooks and Mike Mignola's. The art is just incredible. The The story is great. Um, it's just it's a really great book and it just clicks on all cylinders for me and I really appreciate it a lot. And then uh, the other choice I want to make, again, uh, not a Marvel book, um, and I know um, Russ probably wouldn't be as big a fan of it as Jordan and I, but a Day Tripper by uh, Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba. I just think that'd be a great one-off to do, and it's it's a very self-contained story. You wouldn't have to continue with it. You just do the, the one issue, the one episode and be done, so maybe we can get some guests on for that. Yeah, Day Tripper is one of those weird books that I've never read anything quite like it in comics or really any other media. It's it's a very strange, and, and not strange in its delivery. The, the delivery is very straightforward and very heartfelt and very slice of life, but the the concept and the overall way the issues tie together is one of the stranger things I've read in, in comics or books or seen in television or movies or anything. Yeah, I really enjoyed it quite a bit, and uh, I, I definitely agree with you. It'd be, I think it'd be a great uh, candidate for Long Box of Doom. But speaking of great candidates for Long Box of Doom, here is a book that uh, you know was a, a duty winner last year, uh, a book that we've all really enjoyed from the word go. I mean, I know I've been a big BKV fan ever since Runaways, and uh, why the last man? So pretty much anything he does, um, I, I'm all about. And I know uh, Jordan, you were saying that Private Eye Three just came out the day as we record this, right? Yeah, for anybody who hasn't checked it out, if you go to Panel Syndicate 
syndicate.com. That's panelsyndicate.com. It is uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Marcos Martin, who uh, one of my favorite artists out there at the moment. Um, they are running this website where they're putting out digital comics where you can pay whatever you want. And uh, they have three issues out now of The Private Eye. I think we've talked about the first two on various episodes in the past. I've not gotten a chance to read three yet. I only bought it right before we started recording tonight. But uh, really, really fun book. And if you have been following or have strong thoughts either way about the whole NSA thing over the last week or so, you should probably be reading Private Eye because uh, it plays with a lot of similar concepts um, in in its story. And it's a, just a gorgeous book to look at and a fun book to read, especially if you love uh, noir or neo-noir type storytelling. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Marcos Martin myself, so I, I second your recommendation. Thirded. <laughs> Him and Javier Polito, man. The two of them bringing back the retro style with the modern uh, modern production techniques just really knocks my socks off. Yeah, I'd throw Frank Cavilla in there, too. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this art, but it definitely... Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I'd agree. Yeah, there's a yeah. few a few people in that category, but those are the first two I think of just because they were both working on Amazing Spider-Man around the same time, and so like every third issue or so you'd get one of their books... And it was just like, I've never seen anything quite like this. This is amazing. It's like a Rube Goldbergian machine of a comic book strip and uh, just gorgeous stuff. Sweet. But uh, as, as we always say on Long Box of Doom, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> 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 we're here to talk about Saga Volume 1 and uh, to, to talk about the book just very briefly to, to paint the, uh, the, the milieu of the book. There are, are two worlds, uh, Landfall, and then the moon of Landfall called Wreath. And the people of Landfall are technology-based. Uh, they have wings um, on their backs, different kinds of wings, uh, some like dragonflies, some like you know uh, bats, eagles' wings, or what have you. And from Landfall comes Alana, who is one of the main characters of the book. And Wreath, the moon of Landfall, is um, more magic-based. And those, their people have horns, again, all different kinds of horns from all, all over the animal kingdom. And Marco, the other, um, uh, one of the other main characters in the story is from Wreath. And Alana and Marco have fallen in love. And at the beginning of chapter one, they're on the run, uh, from their respective sides on the planet of Cleave, uh, giving birth to their daughter. And, uh, the dot is, it's a really cool, um, way that instead of using a caption box or whatever, uh, we get the narration of their, um, uh, on the first page as, you know, being born as we, as we watch, uh, daughter. She's also providing the narration for the story. And the, the, it's directly lettered into the art. There's no break. There's no line or anything. And it kind of matches the contour of the art too. We see here on the first page, for instance, how, you know, this is, this is how an idea becomes real, kind of follows the, the curve of Alana's head as she's uh, uh, in labor and giving birth. And we, we should probably point out right off the bat, uh, this is not a necessarily family-friendly book. Uh, a lot of adult language, there's uh, quite a bit of nudity, um, incredible violence, which isn't common in the book, but when it does show up, it's very bloody. So not a family-friendly book, but if you are an adult and like good comics, this is, uh, this is going to be one you're going to want to check out. Something also I think that bears mentioning is that much like, uh, you know, Brian Wood did in, in Northlanders, um, even though this is a very fantastical tale of, you know, of space, you know, space opera and, 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 uh, and, and ghost and, and, and magic and, and all this kind of stuff, the, the, the colloquial, uh, speech and the dialogue is very much grounded in reality. Uh, they, these people talk the way you and I would talk. 
Um, they don't, you know, speak in grandiose, uh, pseudo Shakespearean tones, you know, like an old, uh, Lee Kirby Thor or whatever, or, you know, or, or an exposition like an old Flash Gordon or whatever. They speak conversationally as, you know, as, like I said, as you and I would. And I think it really adds to the verisimilitude and like the seeming of realness of the story that they, you know, they relate to one another in a very real and, and uh, and, you know, colloquial way. And not to get too far off topic, but, as we go through the book, we'll also see many visual elements that are very real modern world-ish type elements, despite the fact that they're in the future in space in a crazy space opera, um, several tabs of acid in land. You'll, you'll see things like, you know, teapots and standard wrenches and other things that are totally of our world, yet they fit into this crazy, abstract, weird space opera as well. Almost, I guess you could say in a way, like the new Ronald Moore Battlestar Galactica. Where, and I, I think part of it was for budget, but part of it was a stylistic choice where people drive trucks and cars and they fire guns that use regular bullets and, you know, they use, you know, conventional, you know, telephones, you know, the radar, th- those kind of things, um, to, to, to ground it too. And, and in a way, it's kind of a neat technique because it makes it so you're not focused on, the way people are talking or the language that they use or the way they go about things. It, it just seems more natural when you're reading it and you tend not to focus on it. Whereas like when you read, you know, especially you know, on the Marvel side, like Thor or, you know, you're watching even something like Game of Thrones where everybody's, you know, you know, speaks in the English accent and um, it, it just really, it can be appropriate in its place, but, it, but no matter how well it's done, it still kind of takes you out and you kind of have to focus sometimes on like, what are they really trying to say? Because they're using this either Shakespearean or very flowery language. And this is just very natural. Again, kind of like Northlanders was the same way. Just, just, you know, cut with the, with the, you know, the nonsense because no matter what we think of how people talked in, in Victorian times, we probably don't have it quite right anyway. So, uh, so I, I did appreciate that style for this book. Yeah, I think it makes the characters more relatable, too, uh, in, a ma- yeah. in a major way. We we see Alana giving birth to their daughter. It's a girl, and we get a great single-page spread of Marco crying with his daughter in his hands. Um, we, we see that she has horns and wings, like her mother and her father, you know, are just, you know, enchanted by the, the, the birth of their, their daughter. Uh, Marco, uh, bites off the, the umbilical cord. He talks about how, you know, he makes a vow to Alana that the blade, you know, his blade is never going to leave its scabbard again. We find out he's going to break that promise later, but, you know, wants to put the past behind him. He wants to put his, you know, his fighting and, and uh, his warlike past behind him. He just wants to, uh, you know, take care of his family which is is important because this is a war-torn galaxy and has been for uh what we estimate from some dialogue that happens later in the book has been going on for over a thousand generations when you guys first saw this like you look at the cover right off the bat and it's it's you know the the two main characters very white background with a little planet or look what looks like a planet in the background um, and the woman is breastfeeding the baby. I mean, it's just you bloom right there on the cover. Um, and then you turn to the first page and, you know, it, it starts out with some very adult, you know, language. And then we cut to, you know, after she has the baby, she, you know, proceeds to start breastfeeding it. Brian came on and Fiona Staples make no bones about the fact that right off the bat that, you, you know, like you said, Jordan, this is not like a family friendly book, but they make no bones about it right up front to say, this is what this book is. Like, it's very, very much up front and center. It's not like they're lulling you into, 
well, let's you know give you some backstory and and let's gradually bring you into what's going on in this world. It's like boom, right there, page one. You kind of get what the tone and what the you know how the story is going to go. And did did it kind of take you guys aback when you first read it? Like, holy crap, this is really just starting you know like that. Um, I, I know it did for me. I was just like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Um, I don't quite remember being put off by it. I mean, to me, at le- you know, separating the elements a little bit, at least for the language, this is how people talk. This is how I talk in my real life. This is how everybody around me talks, or for the most part, everybody. And so to see it in a comic where they use actual adult language um, is actually nice because it reflects the world I live in as opposed to many comics which are very whitewashed and, and uh, you know, kids safe, if you will, in the language department. As for the breastfeeding, uh, I have uh, several siblings and I'm around a lot of kids, unfortunately, a lot of the time. So it's not that rare of a thing for me to see either. So at least for me personally, it wasn't that weird, but I can see how it could be for many people. I think the only thing I found weird was that that you could take these same story elements and tell a children's fairy tale with it. With just yeah, like a different, yeah. with like a different skew, you know what I mean? The man from the moon with horns and the you know, lady with the wings. And it just seems like they were, it seemed to me they were taking a lot of these like classic, you know, fairy tale or space opera elements and kind of subverting them. And that, that's what really appealed to me about the book to begin with. But I wasn't really taken aback by it at all. I mean, you know, I have, I have a two year old daughter and another on the way. So it didn't bother, yeah. Yeah. It didn't bug me. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't take it as a negative or it didn't offend me. I just, I was just surprised that it would start, you know, that, you know, that raw. Um, and, and like I said, it's, it's definitely not a negative, but I just wasn't expecting that going in. I don't know what I was expecting going in, but, um, you know, and, and I think it's just for the fact, like you said, Jordan, we, most comics we read don't start that way. And so for this one to start that way, it was just like, whoa, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Um, they hear a noise from outside the door, and I really like the, the, this line. Uh, he says, um, you know, Alana asked him, what was that? And he says, I don't know, the grease monkey I paid off swore we'd have this place to ourselves all weekend. Um, and then at the bottom of the page, we see that it is Baron Robot the 23rd of the Coalition Forces, and the grease monkey is literally a half-man, half-monkey. In, awesome. uh, in a uh, garage jumpsuit. Right, in a speed, yes. in a speed suit. <laughs> That was awesome. That was just one of those things where, um, again, you, you think it's one thing and then it turns, it turns into something else. But, but I just thought that was, I just got the biggest kick out of that when I read that. The, uh, coalition forces there from landfall, uh, burn their way in through the dragon bone door and Alana is despairing that she doesn't want her child to die without a name. So, um, she wants to, him, uh, Marco and, uh, to try to think of a name. Um, the Baron comes in and as soon as, uh, it's really funny. It's pretty much as soon as they come in and they say to step away, you know, they, they, they take, uh, you know, the, they're trying to take the two prisoner in come a group from wreath. Uh, they're able to detect the magic incoming. And sure enough, uh, we see, uh, people with horns. Uh, three of them look like they have horns more like a, um, like a gazelle. I would guess, or like a wildebeest, and then their leader seems to have horns that look like an, an elk or deer, more like antlers. Uh, so we have, you know, the two compo- two competing sides, um, the, the Lanfalians led by the, uh, the robot baron and the, uh, the, the, the Rethians, uh, wild magic. Both of them are coming after Marco and Alana. And in a really cool touch, all the people from Reef speak Esperanto. Yeah. So if you're any of those, any Esperanto fans out there, <laughs> now you can show off your, your, uh, your skills. 
in translation. <laughs> you don't know what they're saying. Uh, and then, um, as the two groups face off with Marco and Alana and the baby literally in the middle, they fire upon each other with magic versus tech. And in a very Pulp Fiction kind of moment, everyone falls except for Alana, Marco, and the baby. Uh, it just <laughs> reminded me of Jules. And, uh, and yep. if it's in Pulp Fiction where he shoots like 12 times, it doesn't touch. And, and then a little bit, you know, the comparison has been made with this book. It's like a little bit Star Wars just from the space opera uh, perspective, but a little bit like R2-D2 and C-3PO at the beginning of A New Hope where they're they're literally walking across this huge, uh, you know, blaster battle and neither one of them even gets nicked, you know, because they're just so inconsequential at this at that point that... Nobody really cares, but I, I just when I when I was reading this and saw that panel, that's just the, immediately the vibe I kind of got. Then we see in the aftermath of the battle, the uh, the only other person left alive is the grease monkey rented them the place. Um, he gives them a, uh, a map, and then we uh, go into a narration by uh, by uh, who will later be named as Hazel. So I'll go ahead and, and spoil that for you now. Um, the daughter of Marco and Alana, again, narrating the story, um, kind of telling us in, in about a page or two, um, the, the, you know, in, in actually very few words, if you look at it, the, the info dump you need to kind of have the background of what's going on here. And these pages, uh, look like, uh, uh they're painted, um, almost like map paintings as we pull away from the planet Cleve, you know, slowly from the grease monkey shop to the city view to the planet view to a galaxy view. Yeah, I really love that um, kind of juxtapositional art style. They did a similar thing in another image book called Viking um, that was, I believe, a five or six issue series where even within one page, you might have some panels that were painted and some that were more traditionally pencil drawn. And it really adds this nice contrast, particularly in this one where, where like you said, it looks like a matte painting. And we'll see um, further on in the book pages where the background will be a matte painting, but most of the characters will be pencil drawn, it kind of gives you that old Looney Tunes feel of looking at, um, I think the example I've used before is, if you watch an old Looney Tunes cartoon, sometimes you'll see, you know, the characters there walking around, and then there's a map painting in the background, but you might notice a door or something else that is going to move eventually has been drawn on top of the map painting, and so as a kid, I was always able to go, okay, so I know that door is going to open at some point, because the animation style is different. You kind of get that same feel here in this book, and it really helps the characters pop off of the page. We get the uh, the, the this uh, nice full page spread of landfall and wreath, um, and I love the line here. If there ever was a time these two got along, nobody remembers it. Which references what Jordan was talking about. This war has been going on for a very very long time between the two of them. So much yeah. so so much so that it's spread out throughout the galaxy. You know beyond um, you know their own system. I mean they realize that you know they the two different planets, you know landfall and wreath are, are dependent on one another for their existence. So they really can't blow each other up so they've extended their war across Basically the stars. an outsourced war right uh, clo- similar to joe haldeman's forever war if you've ever read that classic sci-fi book uh, that's a good good parallel we then go to landfall's capital where we meet prince robot the fourth and his princess um in flagrante as it were something i should mention though the aristocracy in um, landfall all have televisions for heads and they also have uh, um, other cybernetic replacements too. For instance, um, you know, Prince Robot the Fourth has a, an arm that turns into a gun, 
uh, I guess, under mental command or under duress. Um, so I just wanted to mention that as we went forward. <laughs> so we see two people with televisions for heads having, you know, having sex. Unsatisfactory sex, I guess. Yeah, Prince Robot the Fourth just came back from uh, a tour of battle that he describes as, uh, or two tours of battle, I think, that he describes as hell. And uh, he's having some uh, some issues downstairs after that. You'd think uh, the advanced society would have the little blue pill by now. <laughs> they don't even have normal heads. Yeah, how, how would you take again, a pill? You're right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> They'd have some Goes sort of... Goes into the uh, HDMI port. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a USB key that uh, contains the antivirus or whatever. Um, yeah, th- this is, again, when you another one of those panels where you're just like, oh, okay, that's uh, interesting. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting that when I turned the page. And 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 Vaughn and Staples do a, a good job, and and it's multiple times. We saw it on the very first page, where the main character is asking a question, and then we find out that you know we flip the page, she's giving birth. Uh, same thing here, where we start the last panel of the previous page um, has a declarative, and then we we flip over the page, and then we see you know what's going on, and you're like, oh wow, those are two naked people with TVs on their heads having sex. It's like wow, didn't didn't expect that. Um, and so it just adds to the kookiness of this book and just how you can't ever be like it, it gets to the point after a while where, where you're like, nothing, nothing surprises you. You're, you're almost expecting that when I turn the page, I'm going to see the weirdest thing I could possibly imagine. And it's like, oh wait, it's even weirder than I thought. And not only Um, is it that weird, but it somehow fits perfectly into this world. Yeah, that yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. especially, you know, as we get further along um and we see even stranger things, they're like, yeah, it's strange, but somehow it works. So, uh it, it, it anyway, it's just it's just like I said, this is just a very different kind of book. I think Jordan, Jordan makes a very valuable point that it all fits together. I mean, there are some comics yes. like Ted McKeever's Plastic Forks or something like that. They're just weird for the sake of being weird. You know, it's just like how weird can I get with this, you know? But this has, uh, like Russ is saying, it definitely has some strange, weird, uh, you know, design and, and aesthetic qualities to it. But it, uh, like Jordan says, it also fits together incredibly well. The, the subtitle for the series could be because why not? Just, yeah. Why is something like this? Well, I don't know. Why not? Why is it not going to be something different? You know, it's just because it looks cool. All kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> it, it looks cool. It looks weird, and it fits into this bizarre world. And it only gets more bizarre as it goes on, which I appreciate. Um, Prince Robot the Fourth is called to his drawing room, and we see here that he has the uh, the horns on the walls of the people he has bested from uh, Wreath in battle. He uh, meets uh, Special Agent Gale there, who briefs him on Alana and Marco, and says that uh, his new assignment is to find them. And basically their backstory is uh, Marco was a prisoner of war, he was in prison, Alana was his guard... They fell in love, they broke out, and now both sides in the war, in this kind of Romeo and Juliet in space, uh, want them captured and destroyed, especially now that they have procreated. Right, it's it's interesting too, you know, he's like, uh, um, you know, pregnant, I didn't even know they could uh, mate with their kind, much less reproduce, you know, and um, Gail shows them that he's, you know, they're wearing wedding bands. Uh, matching wedding bands, so definitely, you know, she went willingly. It wasn't, you know, a, a thing of her being, you know, captured or what have you. Um, he just got, and uh, Gail says, well, his new, you know, your new assignment is to track him down and take him out, and uh, Prince Robot Fourth is not too happy about it, because he, as Jordan said, he just got back from serving in a really bloody part of the war, and he was looking forward to, you know, some time to, you know, recoup. 
But uh, yeah, he even lost his leg and had it replaced. Like that's it. It wasn't just like a kind of depressing time. It was really bad that he was spending out there. Right. And uh, Gail tells him that you know he, that Alana you know slaughtered a team of our best MPs earlier tonight. A um, little, little different than you know what we know uh, to be true. Um, but basically, Gail tells him, you know, the, the the ship leaves for Cleve in the morning. Happy hunting. I love the costuming in this series. We see on Gale, but also on the other standard landfall forces and landfall people. Just anybody with the with the wings, basically, all their clothes fit very poorly. And it's, I'd imagine as hard as it is to draw clothes that fit well, it's got to be even more difficult to draw frumpy clothes in a way. But all of the robot uh, coalition forces, all of the, you know, Prince Robot, uh, Baron Robot, uh, all those characters, they're dressed in a very Napoleonic garb that is very tight fitting, very, uh, very, uh, seamless isn't the right word, but there's no creases tailored. or anything. Tailored. It's very tailored. Uh, yeah. Tailored and, and extremely well kept, and that that contrast in the visuals is very interesting. One of the one of the ways I describe this too is, you know, we we talked about it having elements of of Star Wars and even even a little bit of Star Trek, I guess you could say. But I also see it having a lot of parallels to the 1980 Flash Gordon movie, you know, where you have the Hawk people and then the people from, you know, the 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 tree people, and then you know Ming and his people. It's just you have all these kind of different factions that are warring with each other at one time or another and just crazy again kind of not to this extreme but but crazy get-ups and you know just you know like i said people with with wings on them that fly around and and you know other things going on um so to me there's a little bit of element in that uh of that in this and we'll also see a little bit of firefly later on and of course the uh the shakespearean romeo and juliet as well sure um, sure in the narrative there's a nice hodgepodge of Different things that all kind of fit well, well together here. Cut back to Alana and Marco in the um, in the sewers. Uh, Marco is using a small spell to light the way uh, as they go through, and Alana has picked up a weapon uh, called a Heartbreaker off of one of the uh, the landfall uh, soldiers that attacked them. And Marco shows Alana what the grease monkey passed on to him on the parchment. It's a map, and I, I really dig this map a lot. Um, you have the, you know, the river tranquility, you know, the woods, the uncanny bridge leading to the rocket ship forest, you know. Um, it's just very, uh, very cool. And, it, and if, and if and, you don't follow the map exactly, you might end up in Murder Valley, which sounds like a bad place to be. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because when you're, when you look at this, it's like, that's kind of ludicrous. You know, they, they really like a map, you know, X marks the spot, the whole thing. And I love that Marco's very skeptical of, Alana's very skeptical of, of the fact that there's um, an, an actual, tre- you know, treasure here. And Marco is, is kind of believing it. Um, and it, so it's, it's just, it, it's like it's very self-aware of the fact that this is kind of a silly thing. Um, and they're going to recognize it being silly, but yet they're going to go forward with it anyway, which I, I thought was was pretty cool. A brief argument is about you know whether to to follow the map or not, and then Alana pretty much um, shuts him down by saying, "I want to show a girl the universe." It's very telling too. We were talking, um, I think we were talking in the email chain or whatever about we we're trying to figure out how old Hazel was while doing you know this narration. Like, is she an old woman? You know, looking back on her life, or is she, you know, she just, you know, just like in her teens, like looking back on just her early, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes, but this seems really insightful and wise, you know, in kind of a way about her father. Yeah, I think you, you guys were kind of, or I know, Jim, you were kind of leaning towards her being like an older woman, maybe towards, you know, the end of her days, kind of re- retelling her story. I kind of took the perspective that 
this was, and, and maybe it's just the style, it reminded me of the Brian Michael Bendis, Alex Malev Scarlet comic. Uh, so it, it, a lot of her narration, for whatever reason in my head, I just kind of see that character because that book is told from kind of a similar perspective. Uh, so I see her as kind of this early twenties to, to mid twenties, um, you know, person that's kind of retelling the story. Uh, you know, for me, it, it just seems like it's a younger perspective, but I I definitely see where you're coming from, uh, on the, on the older one, uh, on the older perspective as well. And I really appreciate that you can kind of read it either way and it doesn't, give away too much in terms of what will happen to the character of Hazel. I mean, she she does make a point to say that she at least got to live and have a life, but what she considers a life, how many years that is, is left very ambiguous, and the way that her narration is written leaves it open-ended to anything could really happen in this book, not just in terms of what crazy visual thing is going to be shown next, but story-wise, what is going to happen to her and her family we got no idea, and this doesn't really clear it up, but it leaves it open-ended enough and ambiguous enough that it could be either, or anything in between. We then, uh, through the narration, make another transition, and we get to meet The Will, um, a freelancer in this milieu. And a freelancer is you know, much like a bounty hunter or you know something like you know, what we know as a bounty hunter. Um, and all of them have the article The uh, before their name. So, you know, you have the will, later we'll meet the stock. So that's, you know, kind of how they know. In fact, that's how, how, um, you know, one of them gets given away later is by, you know, saying my name is the whatever. And well, we'll see, but we meet the will here and his lion cat, uh, which is a, a bubasticized, uh, cat who can detect lies. One of those Egyptian hairless cats. I forget the, the technical name yeah. for them. But uh, as, as a person who's very anti-cat myself, because I'm highly, highly, deathly allergic to them, um, this is still an awesome cat. Yeah, and I just, I have to say, how awesome is it that this guy's name is The Will? I oh, just, yeah. There's just something about that that is just awesome. And he's a very Han Solo character, not just in his characterization, but even right down to, going back to the costuming, he's got the uh, Corellian bloodstripe pants, although technically these are the yellow ones, uh, or with the yellow stripe that you see Han Solo in, in uh, I believe, A New Hope, but also in other places in the series. And uh, he's got this great cape, which even gets uh, called out a few times in the story, that he really loves this cape. And the cape's got a hood that, so far in the series, to my knowledge, he has never put the hood up. And I love the design element of it, of having this functional part of the cape that never gets used. It's just there to basically give him character and give it, give the silhouette a specific look and, and it adds something to this character, despite the fact that he never uses it, which I find kind of a really cool design thing. Now, wasn't it you, and Jordan, in an email chain that said you kind of see, see this character as being played by Jason Statham? Yeah, I mean, if I was... I kind of, whenever I read this book, I, I try to cast the characters because the way Fiona Staples draws them, I, I wouldn't say it's like a Greg Land in that she, you know, you know, is tracing pictures or something of of famous celebrities out of GQ, but they definitely have resemblances to actresses. Uh, you know, Alana looks very much like uh, Freema Agamemnon from Doctor Who, Martha Jones, and t- uh, to me, whenever I see the Will, I see Jason Statham in, in his face. For, for whatever reason, most of the actors. I, uh, I I associate these characters with our British, so. Yeah, that cape too reminds me a little Lando Calrissian. Same, the blue on the outside, the red underneath. Yeah. Um, and so and yeah, that mask kinda... type on the hood. There's a specific superhero who has a mask like that. I can't think of the person's name, but uh, it's kind of. It kind of looks like, um, 
it's uh the um the Mark Miller comic that he oh Nemesis. That's what it is. It reminds me yeah. of the Nemesis hood, yes. Yeah. That was a series that went off the rails in its last issue, but we're not here to talk about it. Yeah, kind of it's kind of like a cowl, basically like a Batman cowl, except without any, you know, ears. We uh, we see the will going to where his uh, appointment is supposed to be, and he uh, gets delayed by a giant fire-breathing monster. Um, I, I like, you know, he doesn't panic. He stops. He puts up his cape. And he says, "Think, think, think," and then realizes he has a bag of gunpowder in his pocket. Throws it into the flaming monster's mouth. The monster explodes, and then he finds out he is being auditioned <laughs> by Vez, who is the woman who is there to hire him. Who's a unicorn? She has a unicorn horn, that is correct, and all dressed in white. And, and it seems that his cape is fireproof. I mean, it's a very tattered, kind of ragged cape, but uh, he's able to deflect a fire-breathing troll thing uh, with it. So, very powerful, apparently. Which which makes me think, if he ever does put that hood, you know, the cowl over the top, that it, it has some sort of uh, function. Could be. So when it finally comes into play, it'll be a big deal then? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Fez pretty much uh, runs down the same thing that uh, Gail ran down for uh, Prince Robot the Fourth. She wants uh, Marco and Alana killed, but the baby saved. And uh, when she gives him uh, the will of the reason why she wants Marco atta- you know, uh, brought in, uh, the cat detects her lying. Um, so she basically, you know, tell, you know, gives him a uh, an unlimited credit card, pretty much. Um, says, you know, you're not the only freelancer we hired, um, and that the infant is to become uh, the orphan, as she refers to the baby, uh, should be returned to her uh, alive and unharmed. We then cut to Marco and Alana making their way through the forest, um, uh, through the woods to the Uncanny Bridge with the baby, and as they make it to the Uncanny Bridge, they look down into the canyon, and we get this giant double-page spread of the war uh, in full force we see like a giant uh, war turtle uh crushing its way to the broken uncanny bridge um just i mean they're far enough away from the battle that you know all the combatants are, are pretty small uh, but we see um you know it's just it's a really cool battle scene you know as seen from far away and this is what i was talking about earlier where if you just look at this double page spread, there's not a single text bubble or, or uh, caption or anything. It's just this art. And it looks like you have a animation cell, basically. It looks like you have a matte painting and a single frame of animation that have been taken out of context of a animated cartoon and have been put into this book. And it's gorgeous. The The backgrounds are all that, that painted matte style and all the characters are the more pencil style and they really pop off the page and they really stand out. And, and the, you know, in addition to the giant war turtle or tortoise or whatever the heck it is and the, uh, landfall ships and all the soldiers down below, even the tiny details, like there's a, uh, landfall soldier that appears to have been crucified and lit on fire, maybe even two of them by, by wreath forces and, uh, the winged figures who are tiny, but coming at the horn figures in battle. And it is a really cool, uh, double page spread. They momentarily despair that the bridge is broken, but then Marco says, we'll just find an alternate route. You know, he proposes that they name the baby Hope, and uh, she says, uh, you know, if you think I'm calling my daughter that, I want a divorce. And uh, we get the um, the um, narration from Hazel here that says, but thanks to these two, at least I get to grow old. 
not everybody does. And that is, again, another thing proving to me that it's someone who's, you know, more of an advanced age than a younger person. So, or someone who knows their own future. So, yeah, I guess either way it can play. And as the issue ends with when it says not everybody does and the, and Alana and Marco are kissing each other, we see all these crazy glowing red eyes in the background through the forest. So, kind of an interesting interesting way to end the issue. Right. We'll find out a little bit more about them next issue. But right now, at the beginning of Chapter 2, we uh, we see the Will on the phone to his agent, who happens to be a seahorse in a, in, in a robe. Because why not? Like Jordan yeah, said, why not? a wild-looking character. But then we see, you know, the Will is in his kitchen on his spaceship as he talks to his agent, who I don't think we get a name for in this first volume. Maybe in volume two, I'm not sure. Um, but you can look behind him in the kitchen. He's got very standard uh, modern-day cabinets with uh, strainers hanging up and pots and pans like you might see and looks like bottles of detergent and other things like that. Despite the fact that this is on a spaceship and he's got a giant lion cat, um, it looks very real to life. I'd hate to have to clean that cat's litter box. That's all I gotta say. (laughs) Did you clean the cat's litter box? Yeah, sure I did. Lying. Uh, He finds out that the stock is also uh, a freelancer uh, on the same case now uh, that his agent has also sent. Um, and that kind of gives him pause. Uh, he says, you know, if the stock is on their trail, those kids are already dead. So he decides he's going to go spend, uh, his, the white card that Vez gave him at Sextillion. We'll, we'll just have to describe it when we get yes, there. Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> a house of pleasure. Yes. A planet of pleasure. Uh, we then cut back to Alana and Marco who are making their way through the woods. The woods are attacking, they're trying to get to the rocket ship forest. Um, they're in the, uh, the endless woods and being attacked by the, the plants themselves. Um, he says, Marco says he can, uh, he can get them out of there. Uh, you can use his magic and free them, but he has to have us, all magic in this world has a price. And the, the price for this is a secret. So once Alana dishes the secret, they're freed. Yeah. It's kind of cool that all, you know, all these spells have ingredients and the ingredients can be real life things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, eye of newt or, or, you know, some bit of this bark or something, but also they have these other more uh, esoteric elements like like a secret or a promise or a vow or things like that. Right, like later, I think uh, snow is one of the ingredients. Yes. Yeah. It seems like a very Doctor Who thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't watch Doctor Who, so I can say. Definitely this scene, though, reminds me of... uh, like uh, the the time that the, the the second time the angels came in the weeping angels where they're in that forest not that the vines were alive in that episode I don't think but you know that same kind of gloomy backlit forest feel yeah. from that episode and not to mention that you know like I said before Alana looks like uh, Martha Jones my favorite companion from Doctor Who and Marco looks a little bit like David Tennant maybe yeah a, definitely a, I definitely see that maybe da- David Tennant if he was born in Spain instead of uh, England or Wales, <laughs> Wales or Scotland or wherever he's from I think he's Scottish. And his mother mated with a ram. Yes, yeah, that, that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big change. Uh, David Tennant does not have ram's horns. Last time I checked, the couple uh, after freeing themselves are pretty bushed, and uh, they fall asleep in the forest. And much like the end of issue one, we see a bunch of pairs of eyes out in the forest watching them sleep. Glowing red eyes again, very Looney Tunes ish, very, very uh, familiar. You know, you, you don't need any dialogue to explain. What's going on? Although you know, we do have Alana's, uh, or I'm sorry, Hazel's narration of that's when the Gawkers show up. But just from red eyes in the woods, 
we've seen enough cartoons to know what's going on. We then go to another part of Cleve where uh, Prince Robot the Fourth has landed, and his eager young uh, Lute- uh, Lieutenant Lance Corporal McHenry uh, is there to help him out. Um, she knew Alana briefly. Said that uh, you know that she used to read books. <laughs> Um, and, you know, who has time to read anymore? And she, you know, and the princess, what, what does she read? Religious text, propaganda? Um, to which, um, you know, um, McHenry replies, no, uh, the kind that housewives buy in the supermarket, you know, romance novels. And this plays on into the story a lot more than you'd think as it goes on. And I really like the subway train shape, like the Chinese dragon here at the end of the sequence. Yeah, although the given how everything else in this world works, where lots of things are alive when they shouldn't be. <laughs> Or, or things are alive that don't appear to be alive. I don't know that I'd want to get in the giant dragon because it might be an actual dragon you're riding in the stomach of. Uh, we then come back to the, the woods. The baby wakes up, uh, hungry and crying, waking up the couple. Uh, at first, um, you know, Marco thinks she's just hungry, but no, Alana says that she's scared. She, uh, you know, Marco is like, well, you know, the, whatever's out there, we have to make it understand we can come in peace. So he lays his sword down as a gesture of good faith. And out from the woods steps a woman, uh, with eight eyes. Uh, incredibly white, topless, uh, with no arms, uh, wearing a really large hoop skirt and a tiara. Is that a fair? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. She's very much uh, for now. Venus de Milo. Yes, uh, the goth Venus de Milo with uh, spider eyes. Yeah, mixed with black arachnia from the Transformers Beast Wars. Yeah, yeah, I can get that. I like that uh, description. Marco tries to talk to her, and then she says, "I'm just trying to do my job." They call me. The stock. Marco is kind of taken aback by the the, and that, but Alana already knows that she's a freelancer and, and shouts it out to, to Marco. But it's too late. She, uh, the stock attacks with some sort of stinger, uh, coming out of her mouth. Marco goes down in a bloody mess. Uh, Alana's mad, pulls out her gun, and then the, uh, the stock takes off her giant, uh, uh skirt to reveal that each of her other, uh, six uh, legs that she's not, she's standing on two legs, but each of her other six uh, hands is holding a weapon, uh, a ray gun, a shotgun, an axe, a knife. Uh, as she says, the stalk is basically a spider centaur. Right. Or minotaur. An albino sino, spino, uh, spider centaur. And it's awesome. It's one of the coolest character designs in any medium I've ever seen. The stalk isn't threatened by Alana pointing the gun at her, so Alana points the gun at the baby instead. Obviously, you know, stalk is like, you know, you wouldn't. Alana says to keep her out of the clutches of someone like you, I would in a heartbeat. And she heats up the stun gun at the baby's head while the baby sleeps. And uh, Stock is kind of taken aback by her own ferocity, you know. So the Stock runs off. Uh, Marco's laying there in a bloody mess. Alana goes to help him. And then she starts to hear the voices of the red eyes that have been watching her in the woods. We see on the last page of Chapter 2 a bunch of ghosts of uh, of kids. Uh, one of which is in the front, whose bottom, uh, the bottom half of her body is gone. We see a few intestines hanging out, and uh, she tells them that they look like they could use a hand. I love the character design. Again, I know I keep coming back to the costuming and the character design, but hey, it's great throughout this book of these kids. The one in the middle who uh, has no legs, uh, we'll come to learn later, is Isabel, but she's got this very punk rock look to her. Um, uh, t-shirt with uh with kind of a band style logo on it and all the kids have very large ears and kind of snake nostrils if you will uh slit nostrils and they all have this distinctive look letting you know they're from the same uh species group but uh they all they all again like all all the different characters we've seen um 
the people from Landfall have various types of wings, various skin colors. The people of uh, of Reese have various antlers and horns and skin colors. So you definitely feel that they're from the same species, but yet every species has its many different people groups that have come together, sort of like how you might have in the real world, you know, where if you go to the, or even in other fiction, you go to the deck of the Starship Enterprise, it's mostly one species, mostly, but from all different parts of that planet and all different parts of that world, and uh, you get the kind of a, a coalition of groups uh, between all the species in this book. We uh, then we then cut to uh, chapter three, which starts with a, a um, bit of narration from Hazel. My mom once said the hardest part of parenting is knowing when to ask for help. <laughs> um, Alana is definitely afraid of the horrors. You know, she has heard all the stories and thinks that they're going to kill her. But uh, as Isabel. Um, the, the ghost who's missing her bottom half explains those are just projections they put into people's minds so people will come leave, will leave them alone. Uh, they put those uh, illusions into their heads um, to, to keep them away from them in the forest. And, uh, you know, Alana explains that they have nothing to do with the war, They're just trying to take care of their family. Um, the, the Elizabeth offers her help, but only if they take her with him or take her with them when they leave the planet. And the only way she can do that is if she bonds her soul to a living native, in this case, the baby Hazel. We then cut to another part of Cleve where uh, Prince Robot IV is interrogating a prisoner from Wreath about Alana. He shows her Alana's face. The prisoner spits into his television screen. We all, he shows her the book that Alana was reading, and uh, his response is asked to ask him if he was a threshold nun. Prisoner from Wreath, and uh, the Prince Robot IV says, yes, why? And uh, Wreath is like, the Wreath prisoners, is, I just remember how many of you we buried that day. At which point, uh, Prince Robot IV grabs the terrible the table in the interrogation room and starts beating the hell out of the Wreath prisoner as much as he can. And uh, as his uh, second command, McHenry, comes into the room, he's already turned his arm into a gun and is pointing, pointing at the Wreath uh, prisoner. McHenry says, what the heck are you doing? Prince Robot replies, commencing my interview, now be a dear and F the F off. A couple things with these spread of pages. One, you describe it as a gun. I describe it as a cannon and not even like laser cannon. This thing looks like a Napoleonic era uh, cannon coming out of his arm, which is awesome. But also, I mean, as we've already talked about, um, the the robot people's heads are, you know, TVs, uh, you know, old style like Art Deco televisions or maybe a little bit of uh, the original... Uh, IMAX in there, I think they were called. But uh, they they can use these screens to show images, like they can show Marco and say, do you know who this is, or do you know who Alana is? But also they will reflect extreme uh, changes in emotion, like when uh, when Prince Robot 4 loses his uh, temper here, it goes to static. And I love the way they use that to show emotion. And the, the one other thing from this scene that I love, going back to real modern-day things showing up in this crazy space opera book, is the table that, that that is between the two characters that Prince Robot the Fourth throws eventually is one of those uh, hard white plastic with black metal folding legs card tables that you'd see at a uh, you know a church potluck or a, a card game or anything like that and it's so weird to see it here but again completely fits. Also, um, when he shows that uh, he has that image as he pulls his cannon arm out, it almost looks like water spinning down a drain or a black hole. Uh, yeah, screen. That's pretty cool. Uh, we then cut to Alana, who's carrying Marco over her shoulders up a uh, a mountain uh, to get the snow that she needs 
to do the spell to, to save Marco's life. Um, Isabel says, you know, you could do this or you could come through this shortcut. And, uh, I love, uh, a very Whedon-esque moment here. Uh, Isabella says, you know, come on, follow me. And Alana says, into the ominous cave of doom. I just, I thought that was a very Whedon-esque moment. Uh, Absolutely. We then cut to the stock, who's having some issues with some of the lo- local uh, fauna, as it were. <laughs> She's being attacked by what look like giant warthogs. Um, and she uh, calls on her little pink egg phone, the Will, who is in his ship on his way to Sextillion, eating a big bowl of cereal. And his ship looks kind of like an acorn with a whirly gig on top, which is just another one of those cool design uh, design elements you see. And he says, no way, and there's no way I'm ever picking her her call up again. And the cat looks at him and says, lying. <laughs> Stock says, look, I found I found the deserters. I haven't captured them. I could really use a partner on this one. The will says, for, you know, pretty much forget it. I'm out of here. You know, good luck with your big career, as he puts it. Yeah, uh, essentially they were partners, both uh, financial and possibly romantic at an earlier point. And on one of their freelance jobs, she slept with somebody else. She considered it part of the job and just a necessary evil, if you will. He did not see it quite the same way. And we see him pulling into a giant sign that says Sextillion as he hangs up the phone with the stock. I love her line as he's hanging up, which is, Oh, F you, you self-righteous piece of bald. We then cut back to the the heart of the mountain here. Isabel is leading Alana through. Uh, Another one of their illusions is this giant wall of fire that keeps the locals out uh, that uh, Isabel guides Alana through and then into a uh, a boat. that goes through the heart of the mountain. And it very much feels like that scene in Willy Wonka with the uh, the boat through the cave of uh, various chocolatey horrors. Yeah, or Charon's boat on the River Styx. It really has sure. that kind of flavor to it. Um, Isabel bonds her soul to Hazel's. Rich kids get nannies. The rest of us have babysitters. Isabel was my first. So, uh, you know, Hazel definitely, definitely has memory of Isabel, so I guess she'll be around for a little while. Certainly hope so. I love the character. Yeah, yeah, me too. Kind of like a young Allison Hannigan would have been a good is. Yeah, oh yeah, well, I can totally see that. And she just brings the right level of sarcasm to any of her interactions with uh, with Alana or Marco. BKV has a really good way of writing teenagers and kids. I mean, I mean we saw in Runaways, for sure. Um, Absolutely. But it definitely has that, that good voice down for, for that age group. And it's not an easy thing to do. They, they get into the magic boat, and Marco kind of stirs a bit, and, uh, you know, says, tell my bride I loved her. Um, Alana's like, I'm right here. And then Marco says, please tell Gwendolyn I love her very much. To which Alana replies in the first, you know, in the uh, full page spread to end the issue, who the F is Gwendolyn? I love the look of surprise on uh, Isabel's face in the background. Yeah, yeah. I love, and the, the, the kind of the arched eyebrow on Alana, too, is pretty awesome. That, Jordan, like you were saying, the whole uh, Martha Jones thing, I think this is the panel that most resembles her right here. We begin chapter four with another single page spread. Welcome to Sextillion. And it's uh, these um, women's heads perched on really long, skinny legs with high heels. Kind of uh, pretty grotesque, actually. The Will introduces himself. Um, unfortunately, they, the hostesses say that your pet will have to stay back in long-term parking. Um in many ways, this issue is where it starts to get weird, which is strange to say, consider, considering all the things we saw in the first couple issues. Yeah, weird is relative in this book. <laughs> he tells the cat that he would have had a lousy time anyway, and the cat says that he's lying. We then go back to the fort and the mountain that they've read that Isabella and Alana and Marco have reached, and they've covered Marco with snow, 
and he is beginning to heal. Wakes up out of his, uh, his, you know, uh, stupor, as it were, because the healing spell is finally taken. And, uh, you know, Alana's like, Marco, they kiss. And then the first thing out of Alana's mouth pretty much is, you better tell me about Gwendolyn. We then cut back to the will at Sextillion, who's walking by a very a veritable smorgasbord of, of sex and orgies. Like we said, this is not a little kid's comic book. Nope. <laughs> He's smoking a cigarette and watching all different kinds of permutations of people. Uh, I wouldn't say he's smoking a cigarette, by the way. Well, it's, a, it's a hand-rolled cigarette. How about that? Yeah. I, I, he's smoking I one the, of them funny cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got the impression in this sequence for a variety of reasons. Um, first and foremost, that the Will walks through all this almost completely disinterested. Like there's a green Barney with a phallus. There's a inhuman centipede. There's a naked human pyramid. There's all kinds of craziness. There's going a naked there. human pyramid of guys wearing drum major helmets. You left that part oh, out because why not? And three guys. It looks like two or three guys making love to a giant obese woman. Here's someone out and you know, say, "You look disappointed." The, the wool replies, "You know, I thought six million was to, supposed to have everything. This all seems a little safe." To which uh, the, the man replies, "What he needs is a slave girl." But you and me go a little deeper. Uh, we then cut back to Marco and Alana. Isabel's making faces at Hazel, keeping her occupied. You know, Marco explains to her about Gwendolyn, who is his fiancée. Um, but they grew, they've grown apart. Gwendolyn was very much, you know, part of the wreath um, military movement, and he was definitely not feeling that. Um, it turns out their wedding rings are also the rings that he bought for Gwendolyn. And everything he says kind of digs himself a little deeper with Alana after that. You know, especially, I, I love this line here. Uh, Gwendolyn may have been tall, but her hips were boyish, not womanly like yours, you know. To which she replies, you know, for a pacifist, you sure beg to get stabbed a lot. Uh, I love how their characters interact. And another fun tidbit and little uh, contextual coolness thing in this book is uh, the rings are basically universal translators, which will come in very handy as we don't get the impression that uh, Alana speaks um, Esperanto, and uh, she will have cause to use it later on in the series, or at least be able to understand it. We then come back to the will on Sixtillion, the uh, the pimp with the uh, the square head. <laughs> he kind of looks like that one meme. Uh, I can't. I'm not sure what it's called. Like one of the 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 troll face kind yes, of. Or, yes. uh... He takes her down and down to meet Slave Girl, and uh, it turns out Slave Girl is like is six years old. Um, he asks him how old is she and. She says that she's six, and she'll do anything he wants. And then he says, well, then close your eyes. And he proceeds to crush the square head's uh, skull in his bare hands. You do not want to tick off the will. Literally into pieces, too. I mean, it's it's pretty graphic. I mean, you see chunks of his skull. There's, like, teeth flying. Uh, and of course, the blood splatter everywhere. But it's just kind of awesome where he, he doesn't even you know, miss a beat. He just just squashes this guy's head. And, and it definitely reminds me, I mean, again, we keep going back to Star Wars, particularly with the Will, although he's very much Mal Reynolds as well, as we'll see later on in the book from a couple things that he says and does. But he very much gives off a Boba Fett vibe to he, uh, here for me, which is, if you've ever read that, like, Tales of the Bounty Hunters anthology book uh, about Star Wars Bounty Hunters, there's uh, the, the story about Boba Fett is all kind of about how he has this very, I don't know if strict is the right word, but he has a very uh, heartfelt and closely followed moral code where there's things he does. He will kill people for money, and that is his job. But there are lines he will not cross, and he will not stand to see others crossed in his presence either. And he will do whatever needs to be done 
to stop the things he cannot stand from happening. Like here. We then cut back to Alana and Marco at the fort on the mountain. Uh, Alana informs Marco as he's changing the hazel diaper that they are leaving. Um, he can, uh, Alana can sense a noise-canceling field that they use to mask the ship's arrival, and the ship shows up and looks like a giant silverfish or insect of some sort. Um, it's a, uh, it's an attack ship. Alana comes up with, you know, uh, trying to come up with a strategy to get the, you know, get them, you know, to take them away peacefully. Uh, and then Marcos, you know, says, you know, or Alana says, you know, what other choice do we have? Marcos is the last one and he breaks the chain that he's used to bind his sword in his scabbard. And then on the last page, the single page spread, he's holding his glowing sword in his hand and says, we fight. And this is... And that's where we get a little bit of uh, Lord of the Rings, because it's very much uh, the glowing... Uh, sting. Glows when or Yeah, I, I don't know Lord of the Rings that well, <laughs> clearly, but yes, and Sting. It, again, this is pretty symbolic, because he's made a point in the previous issues of saying that he swore he'd never pull a sword again, you know, but after his last bit of inaction, it almost got him killed. So... You know, not only is he breaking his word, but literally the blade was chained to the scabbard, and so he breaks the cha- chain to pull the, the sword out. So, you know, kind of like that double meaning of him not only, like I said, breaking his word, but literally breaking this, you know, um, you, you know, breaking the sword out of the sheath, which I thought was was kind of a cool little bit there. And it's probably important to mention contextually that. You know, he's been called a pacifist multiple times through the series. Um, we haven't seen him in any real action where he takes part. And I think it's already been mentioned at this point, at least once, if not twice, that the first time he saw battle, he kind of freaked out. And that was when he decided he has no interest in being a part of this war and uh, and turned himself in as a, uh, as a uh, pacifist and as a defector, basically. And that didn't go well for him. But all we know of, of him up to this point is a guy who does not want to fight and who got physically ill from even seeing battle, which I think is important, especially coming with what happens next. Well, actually, what happens next is we join Prince Robot the Fourth on the toilet. Can, can we talk about the cover of issue five, though, first? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, it's it's just print all the covers except for the first one uh, I believe oh no 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 I, I take that back but most of the covers from this volume focus on like a single character and in this case the cover of Saga Chapter Five looks very much like a um, a Napoleonic painting where it, it's uh, Prince Robot Four with one hand on his hip the other hand is on a globe which is sitting in front of him he's wearing that Napoleonic garb and he's wearing even a fur cape draped over one's shoulder. And it's, it looks very much like uh, you know any painting of uh, of Napoleon or, or a character like that you might have seen from that time period, which is especially funny when you flip to the first page of the issue. Right, we're sitting in an institutional style uh, mass uh, bathroom on the toilet and reading a romance novel in his Napoleonic garb. Yep, because why not? He gets an incoming call uh, from the uh, from uh, the Robot Kingdom, and we get to see the the seal of the Robot Kingdom, which uh, uh, Jordan pointed out to me in an email. I think that uh, is full of ones and zeros around the outside border. Yeah, such a great uh, element to to, to to just add some character to the seal. The seal could have been just a crown and and some random gizmos and gadgets, but it's got the zeros and ones, so you immediately know Robot Kingdom. And uh, Prince Robot the Fourth. It's uh, it's his princess calling. 
Um, you know, she says, you're no closer to, you know, achieving your goal. And he says, no, if all he's getting is a staph infection. And she lets him know that, or that, uh, she is pregnant. Um, but, uh, the caveat to that is that she can't, he is not allowed to return to the kingdom until, uh, he's completed the mission, not even for the birth of his, his child. Uh, and as she, um, and as she, uh, is, uh, you know, explaining all this to him, um, McHenry comes in and says that they, sh- they spotted something uh, with a scout ship to the east. And then we cut to that scout ship and the um, landfall masses are, <clears throat> excuse me, the landfall troops who are, uh, who come in, uh, are coming after Al- Alana and Marco. Uh, Marco said, and I love these troops. This is, this is heavy co- company and they've got like wings of death written on their helmets. It's very much a commando group like you might see out of, uh, you know, the movie Commando or Predator or something like that. They've all got their different wings. Even the gun that the main, uh, the main guy, uh, is using looks like a, uh, oh, I forget the exact designation, but it looks like the Avenger, uh, gun from, uh, Mass Effect, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it's a very cool design. Almost like the, is it the MX Avenger or M- M10 Avenger, maybe? Yeah, something like that. It also kind of reminds me of the pulse rifle from Halo. They got the order to, to kill the couple. They attack. Marco is able to deflect most of the energy weapons, but one of them hits Alana in the shoulder, uh, knocking her and the baby to the ground, and he goes into a full-on Logan-style berserker rage. Um, his, his entire facial expression changes. And the coloring, too. First, we have this like blue sky and the white snow. And as soon as he uh, gets into his berserker rage, everything is red and orange. Uh, and he's just a blur of motion cutting through these uh, landfall soldiers like a knife through butter. Which which kind of shows us that it's not that he is afraid of war or he is afa- afraid of battle or terrified of any of these things. He's afraid of himself. So His, his aversion to war is not of what might be done to him, but what he might do to others, which I think is fantastic. And so much so that Alana has to shoot him with the stun gun to get him to yeah. calm down. I mean, and we see the transition back from the red to the blue uh, as she does that. Uh, the only way she's able to calm him down is by shooting him full on with the stunner. Uh, and he, you know, pretty much thanks her for it. Says, you know, what would I do with that? Because even though he has uh, seriously messed these guys up, he hasn't killed any of them yet. And uh, he doesn't want that those deaths on his conscience. Then cut to the Will and Slave Girl trying to escape from Sextillion. You make it over to the long-term parking lot, but then they get stopped by Mama Sun. <sighs> I don't even know how to describe it. A purple reptilian uh, female pimp wearing sandal- with, sandals. With a very Incan sun god helmet. Right. Kind of very Jack Kirby inspired, I would say. And the, and the, uh, and the gold one-piece uh, bathing suit. With a slung low... Uh, Gun belt. Uh, Gun holster and a really cool design gun, which she is pointing at the lion cat um, to stop the will in his tracks. Um, basically, um, she tells him, you know, if if he tries to take slave girl off the planet, her arteries will harden and, and she will die. Um, the will asks the cat if uh, she's lying, and the cat cannot say that she is. So um, he's trying to figure out some way to save slave girl, but there really is no way to do so and it's just like when he's fighting against the monster he says think 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 um she gives him back his credit card and tells him to leave the planet pretty much no 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 
She doesn't to give them the credit card. She keeps it. Oh, confiscates the credit card to take care of the incidentals. I'm sorry. Because yeah, basically the only way with, with the security elixir or whatever in Slave Girl's veins that would kill her if she left the planet, the only way to release her from her contract is to buy her, basically. And uh, with, uh, I, I want to call her Big Bertha, but with Mama's son um, confiscating the credit card, he doesn't have the money to do that. So he needs some cash now. Right. He says the amount to buy her out is more than his ship costs. And he's trying to think his way out of the problem like he was before. Then cut to Alana, Marco, and Hazel in the landfall ship that they've confiscated from the uh, commandos that they bested. They have uh, a moment here where Hazel laughs for the first time. There's also mention of a blue box, which I wonder if is a subtle Doctor Who reference. Uh, it's also a reference to a black box. The ship just has a blue one, but could be a Doctor Who reference. And they mention that uh, they put a spell on the soldiers they left behind to keep them alive until uh, doctors can get to them, basically. Right, because he didn't want to kill anybody. Um, he didn't even know newborns could laugh. Um, Alana says the baby's got a lot to happy about. They're they're alive. They've got each other, and they're on their way to the rocket ship forest. They had a good day. Uh, this, we then come up to the stock, who has found the commando group that uh, the Marco beat and tied up, and and left alive, but but beaten. Um, and uh, the stock answers her her phone, and it's the will asking if she still needs a partner for his job for the job because he needs money. Yeah, he needs some cash fast. Um, and this is also where we find out that they were um, they were lovers as well as partners because he says he's still in love with her. I don't think he referenced that earlier. I mean, you could tell from the context they they probably were more than just friends, but this is where he out and out says it. Right. Um, and as she's talking to, uh, the Will on the phone, uh, Prince Robot the Fourth flies up on his Pegasus with a beak. Cause sure, why not? Horses with beaks. <laughs> That's not the weirdest thing in this book, so no big deal. <laughs> it's not even the weirdest thing on that page. That's true, too. <laughs> um, as she's talking to the Will, you know, she, um, tells, you know, Prince Robot, hey, I'm an independent contractor, I'm licensed to operate. Uh, McHenry says she's reaching for something and has a reflex. Uh, Prince Robot pulls out his cannon arm and blows a hole right through the, um, the stock's chest. Uh, and and as he, right before he does, as his arm transforms into the cannon, you see on his face it's just a picture of a baby's rattle. Which is a great way of, again, showing his extreme emotion, but also his motivation, which is he's not letting anything, even even just a slight misstep getting in the way of him completing his mission and getting back to his unborn child and wife. Right, it's all, it kind of it shows what he's thinking about, what his priority is exactly. Um, we then switch uh, on chapter six. Um, we have uh, Marco and Alana and the baby, and uh, the baby has decided to pull at Marco's neck flesh, and uh, they follow the map to the rocket ship forest, but nothing is there. It just seems seems like it's just a giant field of wreckage and, and parts, and. It's I would describe it like uh, Mount St. Helens, if anybody who's listening has ever been there, or, or a similar volcano area where you just have the burnt-out husks of trees in a field of uh, of hardened lava. It's it's uh, not a pretty sight in real life or here in the book. Right, or a, or a forest after a forest fire, kind of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. You're the fire. Yeah, I can definitely attest to the creepiness of that. <laughs> Now, I, I hear a rumor that fire is hot. Can you confirm um, or deny I, that? I can neither confirm nor deny um, that that information. <laughs> you can't give official fire uh, no, advice over I the cannot. air? Fire, fire, is so hot. fire is so hot right now. 
<laughs> They're breakdance fighting. Anyway. How did the hipster burn his mouth? He ate pie before it was cool. Okay. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's good. <laughs> The, uh, as, as they're going through the, the burned out husk of the forest, the sun goes down and Isabel, the ghost babysitter, pops out of Hazel's heart. She says, what are you talking about? You wanted to find the rocket ship forest. Here you go. Isabel explains to her, you know, to them that, you know, that here again, they've used their powers of illusion and they're standing literally right in front of one of these organically grown rocket ships. And we get a, a cool two page, uh, vertical spread this time of them standing before the, um, the, the rocket ship slash tree. Um, that's going to get them off the planet. Great design. The, 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 the twisting uh, branches of the tree turning into the to the classical Buck Rogers style, Flash Gordon style uh, uh, rocket ship's uh, shape and the way it's, it's all still growing into the ground or growing out of the ground, rather, with the roots making almost the uh, the different rocket legs of the of the ship. It's a great design. What I find impressive is that it's organic tech that does not in any way resemble H.R. Giger. Yes. Because yeah. I've seen that aesthetic too many times. That was like one of my big gripes in Man of Steel. I'm like, why does Krypton look like Prometheus? Anyway, uh, we cut back to uh, Prince Robot IV, who is standing over the dead body of the stock. McHenry is already, you know, back, I'll back you up 100%, you know, in the action or whatever. And he picks up the phone that the will is still explaining why he needs money uh, to the stock on. And... Um, Prince Robot, you know, explains, you know, well, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but your client violated protocol, and I killed her in action. To which the will says, listen to my voice. I aim to murder you right after I murder everything you ever loved. And then ends the call. And that is a total Malcolm Reynolds moment from Firefly, specifically with the with the phrase, I aim to murder you, but just his entire, his entire reaction there is total Mal Reynolds, Boba Fett, uh, uh, Han Solo, all, all those types of characters that we I'm know a man love. with a very special set of skills. If you release her now, I will let you live. <laughs> we can see how much the stock meant to him. We get a whole page of him uh, standing, sitting there uh, without any words, silently, um, you know, holding his head in his hands. Even Lion Cat is uh, is distressed by his reaction. And then the next page, we get something else that kind of smacked his Whedon-esque for me. Um, so we're taking our infant child to outer space in something made of wood. I thought it was pretty, I thought it was funny. Um, Isabel explains that they, uh, they have to make some sort of sacrifice to the rocket ship, uh, or else, you know, the rocket ship will not open up for them or take them anywhere. And Marco offers up his sword. Which again, over a thousand generations this sword has been in his family. This is a big deal. He snaps the sword in half, the rocket ship opens up. Um, Isabel, so noble, Alana. Yeah, Isabel, you're not ditching your ray gun, are you? <laughs> not an effing chance. <laughs> Again, another really nice you know, line of dialogue. Uh, you know, the spaceship has a foyer. That's another good one. Um, you know, Isabel says that the, uh, the season's crop was, it was supposed to be all tricked out, and as they're standing there, the, uh, they think it's tremors, but no, it's ignition. Um, Alana, you know, saying, you know, there's no control room. How are we going to steer this thing? And Isabel explains, you know, you don't steer a rocket ship. You ride it, and the rocket ship is uh, is taking off. Um, uh, they talk about where they want to go, and Alana says that she wants to go to Quietus, which is also um, where the guy who wrote her romance novel uh, is from. 
And that's how she ties in. She says, I want our daughter to meet the smartest person in the universe. Who is apparently writing romance novels. D. Oswald Heist is the guy's name, as it were. Might as well be Kilgore Trout. (laughs) Um, The uh, um, Prince Robot IV finds uh, the stock ship, which is made out of the skull of a dragon. (laughs) Because it's awesome. This isn't even a, because why not? It's because it's awesome. Wouldn't you want to ride around space in a dragon skull spaceship? I know I I would. One that has a keychain dongle that lets you do the boop boop unlock, which, again, awesome. Prince Robot the Fourth gets a priority transmission from Agent Gale. He explains to him what, you know, uh, what little bit of progress he's made on it and lets Gale know that Reese High Command knows about the baby as well. As he's paging through the D. Oswald Heist book, uh, says that he thinks he knows where to look for them. And we see the word quietus on his screen, you know, uh, backwards, as if, you know, it was being reflected from him reading it. And Diaz Old Heist is a cyclops, apparently. Yeah, we get a nice picture of Diaz Old Heist with a big, bushy, white Santa beard and one big old eye in the center of his forehead. We then come back to the spaceship. You know, Marco says to wave goodbye because that's where the planet you were born on. Alana comes out of the shower. Uh, as soon as she walks out of the shower, the uh, blue light uh, goes off, and Isabel says, we've got magic incoming, and we see two... Uh, armored wreath warriors present themselves in the ship. One of them attacks Isabel the ghost. Alana's kind of freaked out by that and shoots one of them through the armor. The other um, one comes at him with an axe. Uh, Marco speaks to him in Esperanto and they stop. Marco shows them the baby. Alana's on what the F is going on. And we get from the, uh, the narration from Hazel. And then my grandparents came to live with us. So evidently these are Marco's folks. Such a great ending to the first yeah. time. And I love their look, their helmets, their armor, all of that. I mean, we've seen uh, Wreath soldiers before in the book, but I, I think Marco's parents really look the coolest out of all of them. I like the um, his uh, father's expression, oh, you know, after he shows him the baby. <laughs> and thus ends chapter one, or, um, yeah, this is volume one, sorry, of Saga by Brian K. Vaughan and uh, Fiona Staples. Any closing thoughts, gentlemen, on uh, what you think of the series so far and where it's gone from there? And I mean, other than heartily recommending it, I really can't say anything more about it than we have already said. Yeah, I I just read Volume 2 the other day because that trade just finally came out and continues being awesome. I I continue to love the series. I will continue to pick it up and trade as it comes out because it's so good, and hopefully we do more uh, LOD episodes on it in the future. But I, I love the writing. I love the art. I love just the mix of all the different elements from Romeo and Juliet to any kind of science fiction or sci-fi you can love with a couple tabs of acid mixed in and it's just a really fun different read and and I love it every time I pick it up so it's a huge recommend for me and and if we can you might want to edit this out Jim I don't know but um uh, to pull back the curtain a little bit, not only do we love this series, we love it so much that this is the second time we have recorded this episode. We had some pretty major um, audio and power outage and internet outage problems the first time that um, kept the episode from coming out, and we, we still redid it because we love the series so much. Yeah. I, you know, we've, we've talked pretty highly about this series, and most of the time we've discussed it has been pretty vague. We haven't really gone into detail. So, again, another reason why... We wanted to cover it in more detail. Overall, I tend to be a pretty big fan of Brian K. Vaughan's writing style. I was a big fan of of Why the Last Man, and um, he also did uh, 
the other series with Tony uh, Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Yes, yes, yes. Um, both very good, very a lot of. I guess you'd call maybe not political intrigue, but but social issues. You know, he kind of brings forward, and not in a way that clubs you over the face with it. Um, but you can definitely tell. I mean, Ex Machina maybe a little more, but it, I think that was just because of the story they were telling. But you don't feel like you're being preached to or preached at when you uh, read Brian K. Vaughan's stuff. But you could definitely tell there's maybe even a little bit of X Men in this particular story where we get you know the kind of the outcasts, um, you know, the the outcast concept to it. You know, especially you know relevant today. You I I think you could even relate it to. Um, you know, like the, the gay marriage or the, or the, or, you know, and how that, you know, it's, it's, some folks see it as taboo and others are fine with it. Um, you, you know, there's, there's elements of, you know, interracial, you know, coupling and stuff like that in there. Um, and I think it's just very well done. And it's just, like I said, it just doesn't feel like he's, you know, preaching to you, but still kind of raises that up. And you could see the relevance in today's, um, you know, kind of political climate, I guess you'd call it. Um, and I, and I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, the, the art is, it seems like every time I read this, it, it tends to grow on me a little more. Uh, when I first read it, that was the one of the things that I wasn't real up on. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of Fiona Staples. Um, so I, it wasn't something that I, uh, I, I thought the art was kind of a weak point. And this is probably the second or third time I've been through this at this point. And, it seems like each time I I look at it, I find a little bit more that it, that I appreciate uh, than I did did the time before. Um, so I I think I'm definitely coming around, which usually doesn't happen for me. Usually with when it comes to art, I'm either on or off. Um, and and so this is kind of one of those rare cases where my opinion is is getting better as time goes by, which which I think is a good thing. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I'm glad we um, we were able to get to some of the more uh, new, uh, more recent and more you know, newer uh, comics that have been coming out since uh, you know went on that year long uh, trek with the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, I think in the, you know in the next few weeks we're going to be doing a few more of these uh, one shot episodes, and we're going to be. Uh, looking at uh, Jonathan Hickman's run on Fantastic Four and FF, and then eventually our next long form uh, will be Marvel Cosmic. So we've got a lot of good uh, comic-y stuff to look forward to there. If uh, you'd like to get a hold of us through our voicemail, you may do so at 516-468-7912. Please leave us a message and let us know what you think about Long Box of Doom and uh, all the great comicals and other great stuff at hhwlod.com, where you can find a whole plethora, a whole network, of uh, podcasting goodness, including Real Heroes, uh, the really uh, the uh, the really b- big show, you know, really BS, um, the uh, Half Hour Wasted, Walking Dead TV podcast, um, out now with Aaron and Abe, where they review all the latest movies from out of uh, you know Tinseltown. We um, Donnie Salvo's um, uh, Tales from the Attic. We got the Black Box, all there on hhwlod.com. So definitely check that out. You can also join our Facebook groups. Uh, for Long Box of Doom or HHWLOD um, Network. Check those out, and by all means, um, leave us retu- uh, reviews on iTunes. Give us as many stars as you possibly can. I think five is, is the maximum, and that's what we ask from you because we know that you can do your best for us. So until next time, gentlemen, thank you for joining me here on this Long Box of Doom. No problem. And we'll see you all in the funny papers. Have a good week, everybody. Uh-huh.